Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night and uh, it is time for us to talk about science. Um, So remember that you can find me throughout the week at my Facebook page and you can also email questions or comments to evidencebasedradio at gmail.com and you can now hear this and other episodes of the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Now, tonight is a little bittersweet for me. Um, I unfortunately had to uh, let my cat uh, go tonight. Um, I've had her since about 2002, and so she had been with me for a really long time. Her name was Mira, and she was an all-black cat, and she was kind of a one-human cat. Uh, She was my cat and suffered others but didn't appreciate them terribly. Um, And so, yeah, it's really hard. Uh, The vet didn't think she was that sick until she got the labs back today, and yeah, um, so she ended up having massive kidney failure. Um, so this show is dedicated to her, uh, sort of without having meant to, this show actually is all about animals. Um, all the stories are animal related. And so, um, I am definitely want to dedicate this to her. She was a good cat, uh, despite being a curmudgeon. Um, and I loved her very much, uh, The name Mira hilariously uh, means full of mirth in Celtic, and um, she was never full of mirth, (laughs) I don't think, ever in her life, Um, but she was my cat, and I loved her a lot, and it was really hard to let her go today, um, even though I knew I had to, because I didn't want her to have to suffer one second longer than she had to, Um, so yeah. But we're going to get through tonight, and uh, it is going to be a little bittersweet here and at the end, um, but hopefully things in the middle will be pretty uh, interesting, and I hope that you will stick with me. Um, Just a programming note as well, uh, if you're interested, do stay tuned after um, my show for Civil Politics, where they will be having uh, the current Northampton mayor, David Narkowitz, will be joining them. So if you're interested in that, please do stay tuned after uh, evidence-based. Okay, so let's talk about some more interesting and uh, even potentially a little bit fun stories about animals. So this first one is a rather interesting uh, story about cetaceans. And so a beluga whale in the Crimea has adapted her language to communicate with the dolphins she lives with. Uh, And this is according to a study published in Animal Cognition. Now, she was originally housed with other beluga whales and communicated normally with her companions. But in 2013, she was moved to the Dolphinarium Coctabel, where her companions became dolphins rather than other belugas. And so in just two months, the beluga moved from using typical whale calls to the more distinctive whistles of uh, the dolphins. 
And so she even began began using distinctive calls that the dolphins have, which scientists have basically labeled as akin to uh, names. And she stopped making beluga call and response check-ins. Now, interestingly, the adapt the adaptation was only one way. The dolphins didn't adapt any of their signals to mimic that of the beluga. While the imitation of dolphin whistles was regularly detected among the beluga's vocalizations, we found only one case in which the dolphins produced short calls that resemble, but were not identical in physical parameters, to those of the beluga. Uh, The paper notes. And so the researchers suggest that this is because the beluga, being the sort of odd person out, uh, or odd animal out, I should say, uh, had a greater social pressure to adapt in order to fit in with the dolphins, who already had a readily available source of um, social interaction. And so, of course, belugas are well known as mimics, and uh, it's actually been going around the internet again. I don't have it for tonight, but I can post it on the Facebook. There is a famous uh, video clip of a beluga whale that basically sounds like it's trying to speak human. <laughs> um, and it's, it's you know, you have to give it a little bit of a stretch to, to really feel that it's there. But, you know, it's a good uh, thought nonetheless. And it's clearly trying. Um, and so we have to sort of be a little tempered here to see whether or not this is really just the beluga whale mimicking these dolphins or if they are actually uh, communicating with the dolphins, if this whale is actually communicating with them. And, you know, but it turns out that even if she's not really talking to them, it's still a pretty amazing adaptation, uh, allowing her to be able to socialize um, much more readily and to be able to actually kind of integrate into this uh, very odd situation that she finds herself in. The case reported here, as well as other instances of imitations and whistle sharing in dolphins described in the literature, may be considered as vocal convergence between socially bonded individuals, a phenomenon that can be seen in various vocal species from birds to humans, the researchers wrote. With some exceptions, call convergence is suggested to provide recognition of a group and strengthening of social bonds between its members. So that is very cool. And hopefully uh, they will do some more research, uh, which will help us decide whether or not uh, there is actual real communication happening there, or if it's just that she has kind of picked up this kind of pigeon uh, language in order to try and uh, integrate herself as best as she can. And again, belugas are very smart and very social. And, um, you know, I actually do have mixed feelings about having them be in captivity because they are so smart and so um, social that it can be a little bit Uh, You know, there's a little bit of a moral gray area there about whether or not we should have these uh, animals that clearly have higher order uh, cognitive function. Um, This has been a big issue, obviously, with orcas uh, or killer whales that, um, you know, having them in captivity is really not uh, not a good idea. And we really shouldn't um, be having these animals in captivity. Um, 
But, you know, it definitely shows, again, how smart and adaptive these animals can be. So, um, yeah, I think it's overall a very happy story, though, obviously, I would love for there not to need to be any kind of um, aquaria or uh, zoos or anything like that, that um, it would be great if we had some sort of solution to allowing animals just to be. Um, But unfortunately, in this current uh, world and with the way that humans are, that's unfortunately not something that we can have at the moment. I'm sorry, this is probably going to be a slightly downer of a show tonight because I'm not feeling particularly joyful, but um, I'm going to do my best and I hope that you will stick with me um, because these are really interesting stories nonetheless. Um, So yeah, let's move on now and talk about something that is uh, very sort of interesting to me. And, uh, you know, this can also be considered one of those humaner traits. Uh, it's so this is a story about how bees uh, can be either left or right handed, quote unquote. Um, now, I am a left hander. And in fact, I'm a bit of a weird left hander because both of my parents are actually right handed. Um, and so that's very rare. Um But uh, it's also not a terribly common uh, preference in the animal kingdom. There are, you know, there is a list of animals that do show a preference. um, But for a lot of animals, there is no preference between, um, you know, which paw or which hand that they use. Um, And so it's really interesting to find... uh, animals that do have it. And it may be that obviously researchers just haven't been looking that hard at it because it's not necessarily something that is uh, the first thing you would think about when trying to do research into an animal. But so uh, it does turn out that bees can have a a preference. And so it turns out that sometimes bees will preferentially choose either a right or left-handed solution to obstacle avoidance while in flight. And so that's how they measure it being handed. And so there doesn't seem to be a strong preference for either along the, if you look at the entirety of a colony. Um, And in fact, some bees don't have a preference. In fact, the majority of bees don't have a preference. Um, And of course, this is actually in contrast to humans, we're in around between 85 and 90%, depending on uh, which source you look at, of people are right-handed. And um, there's actually a a funny anecdote about that that I have. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I was in a diversity training, um, and there were probably about 30 maybe even more people from across the campus uh, in that room. And um, in order to sort of illustrate something easily, uh, the facilitator asked how many people in the room were left-handed. And it turned out that I was the only person in that entire room that was left-handed. And so there's a real strong preference for right-handedness in humans. Um, But they didn't see that necessarily in the bees. And in fact, getting back to the bees, uh, Mandiam Shrivan, sorry, Srivivasanan, a neuroscientist and engineer at the University of Queensland in Australia, noted that some bees display a strong left bias. 
others a strong right bias, and yet others a weak or zero bias. And so how did they determine the bee's preference? Well, what they did was they took they tracked 102 foraging bees, which had been marked with different colors um, so that they were able to be distinguished from one another. And so they were added to a tunnel that was 47 inches long with a feeder at the far end. In the center of the tunnel was an obstacle with two openings that could be manipulated by the researchers. And it turns out that when the holes were the same size, around 55% of the bees showed no preference over 10 trials. However, of the 45% who did, about half preferred the right side and about half the left side. And in addition, when the researchers made the openings uneven, bees with a preference were faster or slower depending on the side size of their preferred opening. So if they were left-handed, but the left-handed um, aperture was smaller, they would sort of hesitate for a moment trying to figure out what to do. Um, and if it was larger, then they would just zip right through um, even faster than they would have otherwise. And so um, the researchers suggest that some bees having a preference would be evolutionarily adaptable in order to maximize the the ability of the bees to move in space. Um, and so they note that let us consider a simplified scenario in which a group of bees is faced with a choice of flying through one of two clear passages through a thicket of branches. Um, and this is from the paper. It would be detrimental if all of the bees possessed the same bias, say towards the left, as a population bias of this kind would make all individuals try to fly through the left-hand passage, thus blocking each other and slowing down, as well as endangering the passage of the swarm through the thicket. In this case, the right-hand passage would not be used at all, and therefore would be wasted. On the other hand, it would also not be beneficial to have zero bias in each of the bees, because if the two passages were of unequal size, a group of unbiased bees would all try to fly through the wider passage, overcrowding it, and again, slowing down progress. And so they actually suggest that knowledge of this uh, sort of uneven preference could help with things like uh, developing steering systems for drones. So a lot of this, even though it seems kind of esoteric, can potentially have um, really interesting and useful um, um, applications for real world technology. And so that is very interesting. And um, I think it's very interesting about how it kind of the divide where it's less than half of bees have an actual preference and of those it's then kind of split evenly which is very interesting to me um i think it's very that kind of mathematics is always interesting to me when you find it in nature and um so previously um they had found uh, that birds actually all always move to the right. And so they have one preference. They always move to the right. And um, so this is why they are actually able to avoid mid-air collisions. And so if you think about watching a large group of birds flying around in those big sort of murmurations, um, and they're, you know, flying in these amazing corkscrew patterns sometimes, and they're never hitting each other. 
It's because they all go the same way. And so whenever they sense another bird moving, they move the same way. And so then they don't have to worry about the spatial issues um, involved in possibly moving in various ways. And so that's a very, um, it's a very interesting and important um, thing that he was able, that his team was able to uh, figure out. And that particular research uh, could possibly be helped in designing um, anti-crash systems for airplanes, for instance. So if you have airplanes that are all kind of coming into an airport and there's an issue, if they all go one way, then there's a lot less chance that they will uh, crash into one another. And, um, you know, that's a big thing where there's plenty in nature that uh, has already been figured out for us over uh, generations and generations of trial and error, um, error um, which we as human beings can learn from and use to advance our knowledge without having to do trials and errors uh, and errors and errors and errors Um so yeah, I think it's very important to look for those sorts of um, things in nature. And of course, you know, biomimicry is a huge field um, today, especially um, becoming all the more um, important in a lot of industry to sort of look at uh, what nature is already doing and seeing how can we do that as well in order to uh, sort of maximize our output with a minimum of uh, exertion. So yeah. Okay. So let's move on now. And uh, <laughs> this is another sort of bittersweet uh, story. Um, and it's an answer to a question you probably didn't even know uh, existed out there. Uh, but the question is, why are the majority of mammoth fossils that we find male? And it turns out that the answer is most likely pretty straightforward. Uh, and it's probably because they behaved much like today's wild elephants. And so this research was published in the journal Current Biology by Love Dalen and Patricia Peknarova of the Swedish Museum of Natural History. And so Dalen notes that without the benefit of living in a herd led by an experienced female, Male mammoths may have had a higher risk of dying in natural traps, such as bogs, crevices, and lakes. And so the way that they determined um, what had happened is that they looked at the genomic data um, of the remains of 98 woolly mammoth fossils found in Siberia in order to um, sex them. And so what they found was that 69% of the remains were male. Um, which would definitely be unusual if we assume that the sex ratio at birth uh, is roughly even as it is with most animals. We were very surprised because there was no reason to expect a sex bias in the fossil record, uh, noted Peknarova. And so therefore they suggest there must have been a social reason for the imbalance. And given the fact that modern elephants have a pattern of greater male male mobility, it seems sensible to suggest that this pattern would have also existed among the mammoths. And to sort of add to this, the authors, authors point to another example of this sort of sex bias uh, in remains. And so at the La Brea tar pits, 
uh, the remains of around 300 bison have been recovered. However, in this case, female remains are twice as abundant as those of the male remains. Now, it's been suggested that the reason for this bias is that the females with calves would have migrated together during the spring when the asphalt was stickier. However, the overall social reason for this result would have been similar to that of the mammoths, females in large herds and males more solitarily distributed. Now, of course, this isn't something we can say for certain about either group. The fragmentary nature of the fossil record makes all statements about extinct animals subject to selection bias and to other issues that can skew our understanding. Now, as I've noted in the past, despite what we may think of as a large collection of fossilized remains that have been found around the globe, if you actually contemplate the enormous amount of individuals who have lived and died on the planet, the fraction of remains we have discovered is honestly vanishingly small. But of course, on the other hand, this doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from those remains, as we do have, and, you know, we have been able to make educated guesses, um, which is what a lot of uh, this science is. And so we can see certain things um, and make certain, uh, you know, educated guesses and hypotheses uh, about the life and death of these animals. And, you know, sometimes we do need to revise what we think about an animal from the fossil record. And in fact, <laughs> recently, researchers have reevaluated how we depict the way in which the Dimetrodon walked. Now, first off, as I have probably noted more than a few times uh, before, the Dimetrodon is not a dinosaur. Despite the fact that the sail-finned lizard is often included in sets of dinosaur toys. <laughs> so, um, living between 290 and 272 million years ago, it is actually from a group called the Pelicosaurus, who are more closely related to mammals, in fact. Now, since the 19th century, we've depicted Dimetrodon as being sort of a belly drought dragging creature similar to an alligator. I was baffled as I was going through the literature how little this has been questioned, says Caroline Abbott at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. And she was very confused because uh, she had seen trackways for these animals, and they did not suggest that they had dragged their belly on the ground. That's where the real head-scratcher is, says Abbott. The trackways are more narrow than you'd expect, and in a lot of cases, they lack belly-dragging marks. And so, by comparing the configuration of the shoulder and hips of dimetrodon bones with those of modern mammals, including the short-beaked echidna, and reptiles, including the Komodo dragon, savanna monitor, and spectacled caiman, Abbott and her colleague, uh, Hans Dieter Seuss, at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., determined that the gait of the caiman, uh, which, can, uh, which can hold its legs vertically in order to move without dragging its body, especially when running, was actually much more close to the Dimetrodon than um, a more crocodilian kind of splayed-legged um, display or I should say, um, 
posture. And so Abbott presented her findings at a meeting of the Geological Society of America last month. And uh, in fact, there is indeed precedent for the idea. Uh, Spencer Lucas at the University, I'm sorry, at New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science in Albuquerque suggested that the that there needed to be a reassessment of the posture of Dimetrodon in a paper published in the late 90s. Um, and this was based on research by himself and his colleague Adrian Hunt of, again, Dimetrodon trackways. When we wrote that paper, we were just throwing the gauntlet down and saying, look, the trackways are showing something really different than anybody has thought from the skeletons. But we didn't try and resolve it. Now, one suggestion put forth by some of their colleagues was that the Dimetrodon thrashed its spine from side to side so much that this could lead to the narrow trackways. However, this would again suggest a slow lumbering animal. And this new model suggests a more, uh, a quicker animal that had more maneuverability. So more study of the trackways and anatomy will hopefully resolve our understanding of this neat and already rather misunderstood animal. Um, so yeah, dimetrodons are very cool, but also very much, uh, misunderstood. <laughs> okay, um, we're going to take a break now and do some PSAs, and then we will come back in a moment and talk about nudibranx and uh, kleptopredation, which is a great word. Uh, it'll be your word, new word of the day. Okay, hang on. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over five million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. 
This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I meet with our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. And we are back. And so, yes, we are going to talk about Nudibranx, which are pretty exciting. Um, so, uh, Nudibranx are, well, they're also sea slugs. <laughs> um, that's what they're actually called. Um, or I guess I should clarify, sea slug is a sort of umbrella term and Nudibranx are a kind of sea slug. So all Nudibranx are sea slugs, but not all sea slugs are Nudibranx. It's one of those sorts of things. Um, and actually sea slugs is not a, um, it's not a technical term. It's sort of a more general term. And um, yeah, and I know that anything that has the word slug in it, you probably think ew, um, but actually nudibranchs are amazing. Um, they come in a 
whole variety of uh, shapes and color schemes. Uh, They're often quite beautiful. Uh, They can feature a variety of colors. They're they're often very vivid. And uh, again, they come in all sort of shapes and sizes and uh, color schemes. And they're a lot of them are very beautiful. Um, they'd almost, uh, you could almost turn a uh, collection of them into sort of like a flower bouquet, uh, the equivalent of a flower bouquet for the sea. <laughs> um, and um, I'm not overselling it, I promise. They are very cool. Um, but anyways, and it turns out they're even more um, amazing than uh, they look. Uh, Not only do they look amazing, but they also have this really interesting and uh, kind of uh, cunning (laughs) uh, way that they are able to uh, get enough uh, energy to keep themselves sustained and allow them to reproduce. So researchers at the University of Portsmouth have published a paper this week in the Royal Society's journal uh, Biology Letters. And so Dr. Trevor Willis Uh, led the research which studied nudibranchs off the coast of Sicily. This is very exciting. We have some great results here that rewrite the textbook on the way these creatures forage and interact with their environment, he noted. Now, these particular nudibranchs have developed a taste for hydroid colonies. So hydroids are kind of distantly related, uh, not kind of, they are distantly related to corals. And uh, they are basically another version of what are called super animals. And so uh, they are an animal that sort of looks like one thing, but it actually consists of many, many, many tiny uh, polyps. And these individual polyps are actually um, what is alive, so to speak, in the creature. And so they capture and feed on uh, plankton and uh, small crustaceans. And it turns out that the nudibranchs have a preference for eating polyps that have freshly eaten themselves. Effectively, we have a sea slug living near the bottom of the ocean that is using another species as a fishing rod to provide access to plankton that it otherwise wouldn't have. People may have heard of kleptoparasitic behavior when one species takes food killed by another, like a pack of hyenas driving a lion off its kill, for example. This is something else, where the predator consumes both its own prey and that of which the prey has captured, uh, Willis explained. Now, he had first wondered about the feeding habits of nudibranchs back in his native New Zealand. He was interested in how, if the hydroid polyps were the only source of food for the nudibranchs, could they manage to not destroy their food source by eating them all um, before they were able to reproduce. And so that was when he started to sort of look into it in more in depth. And so um, Willis and his team looked at nitrogen-stable isotope levels in the nudibranchs of Sicily, along with the hydroid polyps and zooplankton in order to see what percentage of the nudibranchs diets was from the hyoid polyps. And it turns out that the levels indicated that the slugs were eating a much smaller percentage of polyps than would have been expected if it was their only food source. In fact, there was really a relatively low percentage of the total prey ingested. 
And so the researchers suggest that by preying on polyps that have freshly eaten, they were able to extend the life of the overall hydroid colony by using that extra energy um, themselves rather than allowing the uh, polyp to ingest that uh, energy first. Our ability to understand and predict ecosystems in the face of environmental change is impeded by a lack of understanding of trophic linkages, uh, said Dr. Willis. And so in other words, basically, we're impeded by the fact that we still don't know a lot about these ecosystems. And so it makes it harder to predict how they'll adapt to change. And of course, he also rather nicely sums up the process of research itself, um, Maybe not, of course, but uh, he notes, while we have some great results, like any science worth its salt, it raises more questions than it answers. And that is very true. Science is a moving target. Uh, there is always more to learn and explore, which is what, for me, makes it so amazing. Um, I love the fact that science is always going to have more questions and more things out there um, that we need to figure out um, what to do with and how to um, develop those answers. Okay, so let's move on now to another really rather surprising story about an animal. Um, and this time we are going to be looking at the wild uh, common shrew found in Europe. So these are tiny little uh, critters that uh, kind of look a tiny bit like uh, a mouse, but they have a uh, longer pointed uh, snout and um, they're cute depending on, you know, your... Uh, idea of small um, rodentia and other kinds of animals. Um, but anyways, it turns out that they have a really unique mechanism for surviving through the winter. And what they do is they shrink everything. <laughs> they have a reduction in the size of their skull even. So in addition, uh, their spine shrinks. They lose 20 to 30% of their brain mass and other organs such as the heart, lungs, and spleen also shrink. So in the spring, they then start to regrow their lost mass. So this study by Javier Lazaro, a biologist at the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology in Radofels, Germany, is published in the journal Current Biology. And so Lazaro and his colleagues collected live shrews, x-rayed and weighed them, and then fit them with a microchip so that they could be monitored during their lifetime, which lasts around 14 months. And so what they did was they collected 12 animals at key life stages, their first summer, the next winter, and then the spring and summer um, before they then passed on. And so they found that their skulls shrank approximately 15% from summer to winter, um, which the researchers believed was accomplished through resorption of tissue at the joints between the skull bones. The bones then started to regrow during the spring, but did not return to the original size achieved in summer. Now, a crucial piece of this of information is that shrews do not hibernate. Um, so other animals would just hibernate. They'd just go into a sort of stasis and they wouldn't have to worry about it. Um, they would just be able to, um, you know, get through the winter that way. Um, but the shrews 
do not. So they need a way to reduce their energy needs uh, during the winter without actually reducing their ability to uh, move and to forage. And so they have really high metabolisms as well. So they need a fair amount of energy um, in order to continue to be able to survive. We hypothesize that these seasonal changes could have adaptive value, says Lazaro. In particular, reducing brain size might save energy as the brain is energetically so expensive. Um, So yeah, uh, most of uh, what you take in for energy, most animals um, that have large brains, even small-brained animals, your brain uses a lot of the energy that you consume every day. Um, Brains are very expensive um, in terms of metabolic uh, resources. And so um, Leszczyk Reichlich of Adam Mikowicz University in Poznan, Poland, and I am so sorry for mispronouncing all of that, I'm sure, um, who has also looked at body mass shrinkage in other shrew species, noted that uh, for the shrews, I really just liked this quote, uh, their winter life is much more, is more boring. They are less active, less involved in interactions, not busy with reproduction and searching for partners. They are just focusing on foraging and saving energy. Um So yeah, um, and therefore they can afford to shrink a bit. (laughs) And in fact, researchers who worked with um, Lazaro have also noted um, that this could possibly be something that happens in uh, several species of weasel as well, Um, which leads them to suspect that this might be more common in small animals with high metabolisms than previously suspected. Again, Good science begets more questions and not just easy answers. And speaking of how to survive the harsh winter, researchers have recently discovered that the European Crucian carp uh, can almost certainly repair brain damage um, from having been frozen during the winter. So every year the carp are frozen throughout the winter and thus receive no oxygen. And yet in the spring, when they are thawed, they basically recover and resume normal life. Now, the mechanisms of this hibernation is fairly well studied. Um, It relies on glycogen, which produces ethanol via glycosis, um, which basically uh, is able to give the cells enough energy to survive and also kind of acts as an antifreeze to keep things from... um, to keep ice crystals from from um, forming, because that's what actually happens when your um, cells are damaged in, uh, say, hypothermia. When you get frostbite, it's actually that the uh, water in your cells has frozen and crystallized, and that therefore it has um, lysed the uh, cells. It's ripped open the the wall of the cell and destroyed the tissue. Um, and so they're actually able to prevent that from happening using this um, glycosis. Um, and uh, they're actually able to keep their heart active. Um, so it's sort of continuing to uh, pump uh, the fluids around the animal's uh, body. And uh, they actually release the ethanol over their gills in order to ident- to avoid intoxication. And um, 
So all of that is pretty well understood. But how they maintained brain function has been less well understood. In order to answer some questions about this process, a team of researchers from the University of Oslo and the University of West Scotland caught some of the carp in a pond near Oslo and brought them back to endure a simulated winter in the lab. So the fish were first deprived of oxygen to stimulate freezing in the winter, and then after a week they were re-oxygenated to stimulate the spring thaw. They used stains to detect cell death and growth. Now, perhaps unintuitively, cell death in the brain was normal during the time when the fish were deprived of oxygen. But once the oxygen was returned to their system, the rate of cell death more than doubled. They then taught the fish to navigate a maze to find food. After subjecting the fish to another round of winter and spring, they had the fish redo the maze. Now, the fish were actually still able to navigate the maze as quickly as before, but their memory had suffered a little bit and they made more mistakes. The researchers then took fish who had not been taught the maze, ran them through the cycle of anoxia and reoxygenation, and observed how they navigated the maze on a first try. And so these fish had a similar ability to those who were taught how to run the maze before the anoxia. And so this suggests that the brain of the fish is able to recover quickly from the loss of cells associated with reoxygenation. And what's really interesting is they are able to do this despite damage to the telencephalon, which is a region of the brain that is analogous to the human hippocampus, a key area of learning and memory. While the fish show signs of increased cell death in the tenocephalon, it is also evident that they can limit the amount of damage they sustain and recover from the insult, an ability that most other vertebrates lack, the researchers wrote in their paper. This makes the Crucian carp an interesting model for a from a biomedical perspective. While it is unlikely that we will find ways to allow human tissues to survive severe anoxic insults without damage, it is feasible that studies on animals like the Crucian carp can provide knowledge for how we can limit and repair the damage. So that's really interesting. Um, I think it's really interesting. Again, another sort of biomimicry idea where you look at something that's already solved a problem in order to figure out Maybe we can help solve that problem using a similar uh, kind of system. And again, you know, they're not saying that we'll be able to figure out some way for humans to uh, basically be frozen and not have oxygen and then be able to uh, be re-oxygenated and be perfectly fine. Um, It just might be, we might be able to develop ways to help with that. Um, Okay. So next, I wanted to uh, sort of come back around to animal communication. And so um, this is a story that's kind of been out there uh, the last day or so um, that has been really interesting, which is uh, the research into how baby bats uh, learn dialect. And so research published in uh, PLOS Biology this week uh, details how baby Egyptian fruit bats learn to vocalize not only from their mothers, but also from other colony members around them. And so vocal learning by repeating the noises made by others 
is actually found in only a few species, including humans, um, and as we noted earlier, whales and dolphins. And it looks like bats can be counted among those numbers. And so what happened was that the researchers captured 15 pregnant bats and brought them back to the lab. They made certain that the bats were genetically diverse um, so that they weren't looking at a collection of closely related individuals because they wanted to make sure that this wasn't genetic. It was um, part of, a, of the larger um, habit of the bats themselves. And so they were placed in one of three chambers um, and allowed to give birth to their young. The young bats were then allowed to stay with their mothers for the usual 14 weeks, um, after which normally they would be weaned. And at that point, the mothers were um, released back into the wild. Now, in each of the enclosures, a different set of external bat calls had been added to the natural calls of the mother. One from high-pitched bats, one from lower-frequency bats, and one with a mix of high and low frequencies. After an additional 17 weeks, the young bats had learned to mimic the pitch of the recordings that, had, that they had been exposed to as they grew up. And so co-author Yossi Yovel, a neuroecologist at Tel Aviv University, notes that while unsurprising, the phenomenon had not been studied before. He notes that the bats would normally grow up in the dark, surrounded by lots of vocalizations from other members of the colony. Um, and so it would make sense that the uh, bats would learn how to sort of mimic the range of the colony and not just their individual mothers. Now, they're hoping to now release the young bats and to observe whether they change their dialect to match that of the wild bats they encounter, or if perhaps even members of the colony will adapt to their vocalizations. Um, and one of the cool things about this that they're trying to find out is, um, again, this is another place where they're sort of looking at an animal model where they might be able to then look at how um, humans do these sorts of things. And so um, it can help human research um, researchers know more about how humans might uh, adapt to learning languages um, and how they are able to do that. Um, because of course, humans and bats are both social mammals uh, that learn by mimicking. And the area of the brain where this happens is most likely very similar. Um, and the thing is, is that this is important because it's in contrast to birds where we have done a much more extensive amount of research into um, sort of song acquisition and things like that. Um, but their brain structure is very different from that of mammals. So even though we might know a lot about how um, birds develop their song and their ability to communicate, that's not really directly um, transferable to uh, human understandings because their brain structures are so different. Um, obviously, again, as I have noted on many an occasion, uh, even though bird brains are structurally different, that doesn't mean that they are any less impressive because, um, as we know, um, and as I've talked to, talked about on this show many a time, birds are actually really amazing, um, and have really, really interesting, um, and diverse behaviors and, uh, they are able to, um, learn a lot of things and so yeah um 
they mostly learn by listening. Uh, they don't do a lot of mimicking. They um, have different ways in which they learn um, how to sing. And a lot of it is also um, innate. And so, yeah. Okay. So one more story. Um, and this is another sort of bittersweet story. Um, more bitter than sweet, one might say. Um I wanted to take a moment to remember a uh, very brave animal, um, definitely more famous than my poor little kitty, but um, yeah, I thought it would be good to end with a uh, commemoration uh, since it is the anniversary. Today is the 60th anniversary of um, the first uh, trip by any kind of animal um, outside of the atmosphere. So this is the 60th anniversary of the flight of Laika, um, the first animal to orbit the planet, sort of. Um, so uh, she was a very good dog. <laughs> um, she had a scrappy constitution uh, that had allowed her to survive on the streets of Moscow. Uh, she was photogenic. She was uh, colorful enough that she looked good in photos. Um, and she was female, <laughs> um, which made it easier to fit her into a spacesuit. And uh, female dogs are also considered to be uh, more docile, so easier to uh, work with. And so she was wrapped in a crude spacesuit and loaded into Sputnik 2. And of course, this was giant news all over the world. Uh, the U.S. press dubbed her a muttnik, uh, as they are wont to do with the punning. Um, but unfortunately, this story, too, has a sad ending. Uh, Laika was never fated to return to Earth. Uh, despite the Soviet government assuring the public that she was euthanized, in 2002, it was revealed that she died of overheating a few hours into the flight. And in fact, Laika's trainer, Adilia Kodoskaya, a Russian biologist, told uh, Agence France Press recently, I asked her to forgive us. And I even cried as I stroked her for the last time. I can absolutely relate to that. Um, so yeah, this has been a uh, bittersweet romp through uh, stories about animals tonight. Um, next week is Pledge Week, so we will have much more upbeat things uh, happening. Um, so good night, and please do stay tuned for Civil Politics um, with... Uh, acting or current mayor, I should say current mayor, uh, David Narkowitz. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, episodes from our archives, and other projects, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.